Hello, my name is Paul Gorski, and I'm the founder of the Equity Literacy Institute. Our biggest challenge isn't really a lack of people who care vaguely about diversity. The problem is that most of the things that schools are doing have absolutely no chance at creating more equity. And, and really, this is a literacy issue. It's not a lack of doing things. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Researching Diversity podcast. I am Miriam Schwarzenthal and I'm a junior professor at the University of Wuppertal in Germany. And I am Sabrina Alanashi. I am an educational scientist. We will be your hosts in this episode. Today we talked with Paul Gorski, the founder of the Equity Literacy Institute. So what can you expect in this episode? First, we discuss how Paul became interested in issues of social justice and how he reflected on his own privilege as a white male researcher. Then, through discussing an article that he brought, we talk about the problems associated with only focusing on culture and not on equity in educational context. And then we talk about the equity literacy framework. And last but not least, we talk about how to not lose hope in our struggles for more social equity and discuss the topic of burnout among social justice activists. As always, you can find the references to the studies that we mention on our website. We hope you will enjoy this episode, so let's get started. Welcome, Paul, and thanks for being here. As in every episode, we'll start talking about the past. Why did you become interested in the topics of equity literacy and activist burnout? Oh, well, uh, my first interest was just more broadly about social justice issues and equity issues. I had always sort of been interested in them ever since I was a kid and just observing things that were happening around me. But it wasn't until I went to college and met a group of people who were going out into the community and engaging people in conversations about issues like racism, sexism, economic injustice and all these different kinds of ableism and different kinds of justice issues. And I was just so captivated by it and by realizing how miseducated I had been that I just felt like this, I'm going to spend the rest of my life educating myself about this. So that was really how I got into this kind of work. So how you got interested in equity literacy and activist burnout. Yeah, I, I, activist burnout came much later when I was a professor teaching courses about social justice and human rights and realizing that a lot of my students who were mostly Black women, African-American women, that made up sort of the biggest portion of my students. And I even... You know, Black women who were studying social justice and studying racism and wanting to make a difference in the world, they were already burning out, you know, by the time they were 18 or 19. And I was just like, well, if I'm going to be a good mentor to these young people, I better learn about this. So that's when I started pursuing that. That was much later. Okay, interesting. Thank you. And why did you become, in general, a researcher? I guess just uh, my my own curiosity. I wanted to learn a lot more about the sorts of issues that we're talking about here, about equity and justice and oppression and how it operated. And, uh, you know, I just had some questions that I wanted to ask about it. And the best way to answer those questions is to collect data and uh, learn as much as I could. So, uh, so that's what I did. 
Okay, so that's why you became a, a researcher, because you wanted to know more about a certain topic and dive into this topic, right? Yeah, absolutely. I became a researcher because I was curious and desperate to understand better. Which challenges did you encounter on the way to becoming a researcher? Did you encounter any challenges? Well, I think one challenge I encountered was I, I feel like my experience at graduate school was great, but the one thing I didn't really get in graduate school was mentoring around how to do research. So I had to sort of teach myself about that. I mean, these were also the days when you couldn't just go onto Google Scholar and find any article. You know, I was having to, you know, or electronic copies of books. So I was having to use microfiche and uh, I was having to go to the library and carry 20 books back to my office and or have hard copies of journals instead of electronic copies of articles. So at the time, that's just what everyone did. But now I look back and think that was crazy. So I guess that was a bit of a challenge. I think also just making sure that I was attentive to my own identities as a white man. You know, I, all of my identities, at least in a United States context, afforded me a certain level of privilege and advantage. And so, you know, I had to be very cautious of how I was looking at data and interpreting data and making sure that I wasn't interpreting it through this sort of lens of privilege. Interesting. Thank you. Did you have any role models, any mentors who helped you in your challenges, for instance, or in the way you became a researcher? Oh, absolutely. I had a lot of different mentors, some who were people I was really close to, and some were just people whose work I read that really inspired me to think, you know, that's the kind of thing I want to do. But I had a mentor in my first faculty position. His name was Walter Enlow. He actually passed away recently, but he was somebody who was doing this amazing scholarship that was very community-oriented. So he wasn't like this lonely person sitting in an office crunching numbers, and but he was like out in the community engaging people. Sometimes instead of, you know, doing a journal article or a book, he would sort of create art you know, related to the research he was doing. And it just opened like a whole new world for me. Like, I don't have to follow all the traditional. I mean, a lot of what I did did go into research journals and that sort of thing. But he also taught me that for every research article I wrote, I should also write a practitioner-related article that translates that for the average fourth-grade teacher who's not reading critical theory journals, you know. No, that's really nice to hear. I, I try to do that also with my own research, try to really translate it to how normal people can use it in education. So it's nice to recognize this. You did it this way as well. Okay, I was wondering, I also read that you also consider yourself a very creative person and it just sounded a bit like you also got that potentially a bit from this mentor you were mentioning or how would you say, are you trying to also incorporate a creative side and combine that with research and work on social justice? Oh yeah, I really appreciate you asking that. I was a creative writer before I was an academic writer. So I was writing poetry and little pieces of creative nonfiction and those sorts of things. And ever since I was a kid, I, I was a creative writer. So I do think that that's helped me make my sort of more academic writing accessible to people. It's interesting because it seems like in a lot of academic writing, 
people place value on just using big words and academic words. But as a creative writer, I was trained to be very sort of economical with words. So how do you say this as concisely and clearly as possible, rather than how do you say this in a way that's going to impress somebody who's read, uh, you know, critical theory, you know, sorts of things. So I don't know. The feedback that I get the most about my research really has less to do about the topic and more to do with making it accessible. And that's okay with me. <laughs> I really honestly appreciate this perspective of trying to make research accessible and also using language that is really understandable for people who might not have a similar background as well. So I think it's a wonderful approach. Um, there was one thing you also mentioned that I found uh, really interesting that you said um, you're, of course, also very aware that some of your identities might be privileged and that you're trying to also reflect on that. So what advice would you give to maybe students who also have a lot of privileged identities? What can you do to really be aware of these identities or to be considered of these identities when doing research, especially on social justice? Uh, that's a great question. My first advice for researchers who are sort of grappling with their privileged and advantaged statuses or positionalities is to read as much literature as possible by people who aren't. And by the way, I think we have a responsibility to cite researchers and scholars who might have had a harder path because of their identities and the marginalization they've experienced. So I think that's really critical. I think, you know, having a group of critical friends who can read over stuff and say, hmm, <laughs> maybe you should rethink the way that you're framing this or that. So one thing I know is that I can be as direct and critical as I want in my scholarship. And as a white man, I will be rewarded for that. I'll be seen as a curiosity. Oh, isn't that interesting? The white guy who's writing about racism. But I know that I have colleagues, you know, in my own organization is mostly women of color. And I know that they don't get rewarded the same way I get rewarded. They might get punished or they might be accused of doing research that just serves their own interests or not being able to be objective or, you know, whatever. I don't get that. So I also think that that gives me a responsibility to be as direct as possible, to name things as directly and clearly as possible, not because I should be taking the place of voices of my colleagues, because from my perspective, it's something I can model for. I don't want to be another white scholar who lets other white scholars off the hook by holding their hand and making sure I don't want to make any white people uncomfortable. If my scholarship isn't making white people uncomfortable, isn't making men uncomfortable, heterosexual people, Christians, whoever it is, if it's not making them uncomfortable, then I'm not telling the truth as clearly as I need to tell it. So I think with that privilege also comes that responsibility. Yeah. So you are saying that it is a sensitive topic that you are researching, right? Well, I guess some people would call it sensitive. <laughs> I just think it's important and impactful. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's interesting words like sensitive. And then the question is, well, sensitive for whom? Because the people who are targeted by the oppressions that I'm studying and writing about and speaking about, you know, they're not hiding from the conversation. They're like desperate for the, to have a real conversation. 
So, you know, maybe it's sensitive to white people who want to read about celebrating diversity and cultural exchange, but don't want to read about racism or white supremacy. You know, maybe it's sensitive to them, but it ought to be. I can't approach my work in a way that's about taking care of the feelings of people like me because then it just won't be honest. Yeah. And do you recognize also some resistance to this topic? I mean, can you say something about that? There's definitely a lot of resistance. But, you know, like I said, I don't think I experience the resistance the way my colleagues of color, even white women colleagues, I think, experience it differently. Or, you know, LGBTQ colleagues, Muslim colleagues, you know, colleagues who might be marginalized in different ways. I mean, certainly there's resistance, there's blowback. I get emails accusing me of being a race traitor. They don't realize that that's actually, you know, thank you for recognizing that. To me, that's exactly what I ought to be. But I think my experience is that some of my colleagues, like I mentioned colleagues of color and that sort of thing, I think they get more resistance within academia to that work than I get. Again, I think I'm celebrated for doing the kinds of scholarship that other people might be punished for or denied tenure for or, you know, that sort of thing. the issues that you raised that especially white people might sometimes prefer to celebrate diversity instead of delving into issues of social justice connects really nicely also to our next section, the present, and to the paper that you brought today, which is uh, by Gloria Ladson Billings. And it's called, It's Not the Culture of Poverty, It's the Poverty of Culture. And if you had to explain this paper to your grandma, how would you do this? I think what I would do if I was going to explain this paper to my grandma is say that one of the biggest challenges in social justice work is the tendency for people, especially, for instance, white people, if we're talking about racism, or men, if we're talking about sexism, to find the fluffiest way to talk about it. And when we do that, the problem, so there's nothing wrong with understanding cultural diversity. The problem is, if that's all we focus on, then we might never get around to talking about how people are actually harmed because of the color of their skin. And this is a big problem in education, which is that there's too much of an emphasis on surface-level, fluffy, vague ideas about culture, and a lot of people grab onto that because they don't want to talk about racism or they don't really want to talk about poverty and economic injustice, or they don't want to talk about sexism. I think that's what the article's about. And why would you say that this paper specifically is an outstanding paper, or why did you select this one? I selected this because I would say out of any article ever written, it's the article that I have cited the most. I'm inspired by Gloria Latson Billings for a lot of the work that she's done. But I think one thing that she's done that I think is very powerful modeling, and she does it in this paper, she does it in some other papers as well, is that she talks about the limitations of some of her own approaches that she's used in the past to equity work. And uh, she just also names a fundamental problem. And I think it's powerful when, in my own scholarship, is not meant to move people who just don't care about any of this to convince them to care about it, but to move people who care about it 
to act in ways that are more transformative and powerful. And that's what I think this article is about doing. She's saying, hey, I know y'all care about equity and diversity and justice, but we can't get there through these vague conversations about culture. We can only get there by naming the things that need to be named and addressing those. And if we do that well, then we can go back and have some conversations about culture. So the fact that she's willing to name that, especially as somebody who's Work draws on culture a lot. I, I just think it's it's an important message. It's an important audience. And it's important modeling about somebody growing in their own work. And I think she and maybe uh, Christine Sleater are the two people who I've seen sort of model that growth in their own work the most out of the scholars who have influenced me. I think it's also a very important trait to reflect on what you yourself did in the past and to also allow yourself, you know, to grow and learn and develop your own approach. I think that's a very important point. Yeah, it seems like she brings like conversation about diversity to a next level, not only the, you know, being really critical about your own research focus, about your own focus on diversity. And that's nice to hear and to see. And you already mentioned that one of the main points the article also makes is that we only focus on culture and educational context, we might neglect that there's actually a lot of issues with social injustice, uh, discrimination and racism going on. And another very interesting point I think that she makes is that she says that culture is often only the answer if the students in question are not white, not English speaking and not native born uh, US citizens. And that members of the dominant society rarely acknowledge themselves as cultural beings. So I think that's a very important point, and I would say that's also definitely the case in the German context, as far as I can tell. So that culture is typically only used as an explanation for behavior of minoritized groups. So I think that was a very important point. But you know what's interesting about that, too? And I think this is a problem with a model like cultural competence. If somebody says German culture, generally what most people are going to think about is dominant German culture. They're not going to think about people who have African ancestry who were born and raised in Germany. That's not what they're going to be thinking about. So it's really about when is it uh, beneficial to dominance to talk about culture in terms of who we're including so we might talk about it on the one hand in a way that makes people who aren't white, you know, Germans, makes them completely invisible, you know. And then on the other hand, in some other context, it might be we talk about culture as there is really no such thing as a dominant white supremacist kind of culture. That's a really important point, I think. And that I just wonder, how can we also in teacher education find a balance between completely erasing culture, but also not using cultural stereotypes or only using culture for certain groups or kind of not acknowledging the possibility that culture is also a dynamic construct? You know, So how are you dealing with this in your own teacher training or what can you think might be useful approaches to maybe not completely abolish culture, but treat it in a more nuanced way? Yeah, actually, I wrote an article that was sort of inspired by Gloria Latsa-Billings article. And my article is called Rethinking the Use of Culture and Educational Equity. So I've never argued that we should not talk about culture because I think culture is one aspect of many aspects of identity. It might even be a particularly complex aspect because it can draw on experiences related to various identities. So I think we should talk about that. I, I think we should talk about people's cultures, people's, you know, I, I think when we look, for instance, at 
a school's institutional culture, and then we look at that compared to like the cultures of communities that feed into the school, you can see in terms of everything from like communication styles to, you know, all these sorts of things. I think that's an important way of looking at culture that has equity implications. But the thing I don't think we should be confused about is that racism is not predominantly a cultural issue. It's not a cultural mismatch. Racism is a power, privilege, and oppression issue. It can only be solved with solutions that address power, privilege. It's not cultural misunderstanding. There are cultural misunderstandings, and we need to address that too. You know, heterosexism and homophobia and cisgenderism and transphobia, those aren't cultural issues. Those are issues of oppression. So they have to be addressed as issues of oppression. And I think that's the sticking point. So I think it's a both and. We need to address culture and we need to address race and we need to address religion and we need to address sexual orientation and gender identity and all that. We need and 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 and. We need to address all those things. The problem is thinking that we're going to fix all of those through only addressing culture. And that can't happen because those issues are not primarily cultural conflicts. They're power and oppression conflicts. And in your own work, you then propose the concept of equity literacy, right? Also a bit as a maybe complement or alternative to cultural competence. So could you explain also to our listeners what you mean by equity literacy or how you would define this concept? Yeah, so equity literacy is, well, let me take a step back for a second, just give some context. My experience working in the equity and justice circles in education What I've learned is that our biggest challenge isn't really a lack of people who care about vaguely about diversity, although, of course, that can be part of the problem. The problem is not a lack of schools doing things related to diversity or intercultural, because most schools are doing things. The problem is that most of the things that schools are doing have absolutely no chance at creating more equity. And really, this is a literacy issue. It's not a lack of doing things. And the problem, at least in the U.S., the problem is that we call this the shiny new thing, equity detour, that the tendency is, oh, here's a cool new program. And look, the school over here is doing this neat program, so we should do that neat program And so we're just going to implement that program. So maybe it's anti-bullying, maybe it's social-emotional learning, maybe it's restorative practices, you know, whatever it might be. And the presumption is if we just find the right combination of programs and initiatives that we're going to eliminate inequity. And the step that is always skipped is the step of actually identifying what the inequities are, how they're operating, why they persist. And because that step is skipped over, then the solutions are always these very surface level solutions. And I think doing this work as long as I have that, I think that's purposeful because what happens is schools create the illusion or the optics of doing something without doing something meaningful. So the privilege and the advantage systems are maintained, but we have the illusion of, oh, look at this neat student program or look at this neat anti-bullying thing that we're doing. 
So equity literacy is really a framework that focuses on giving people the knowledge. How does racism operate in a school? How does it operate in my own classroom? What do I need to do about it? That kind of knowledge. Can't get that knowledge through cultural competence. It's a whole different set of knowledge. The knowledge and the skills to do something about it. How do I eliminate racism? How do I transform a curriculum? How do I lead a school in a way that will root out these oppressions? So the skills and then the will, which is, you know, people can have the knowledge and skills, but not have the will or the courage to put them into practice. So the will and the confidence to put them into practice. So we want to give people that stuff to a degree that acting for equity is just second nature. It's a literacy. It's not something I have to pull out of the filing cabinet occasionally and plug in, but it's just something I'm always doing because it's a literacy. It's not just a set of practices. So that's really literacy framework in a nutshell. Do you mean that we should make schools or teachers aware of where racism comes from and how we see it in schools? Do you mean that? The first step is definitely awareness. And one thing I've learned is that people are pretty good at recognizing the kinds of bias and inequity they experience. But most of us struggle to recognize the kind that privilege us. I mean, that's the nature of privilege. And those are the two options. Either I'm marginalized by it or it privileges me. That's the balance. So we got to give people an opportunity to practice and learn how to recognize even the subtlest forms of, you know, would I be able to recognize subtle forms of ableism in a children's book? Well, if I don't know how to recognize that, then I can't be responsive to it. So that's the first step. But recognizing is just the first step. I also need to know how to, how do I transform my curriculum so it is equitable? How do I change this policy so that it doesn't do harm to families who are experiencing poverty or, you know, that sort of thing? So teachers need to develop competencies in order to put it into practice, right? Right. So the competencies, the full collection of those competencies, that's what we're calling the literacy, you know, the equity literacy. That's exactly right. And do you potentially have an example um, of a case of an equity that might be difficult for teachers to recognize at first and that you would think uh, would be important for them to learn about or to become sensitive to? Well, I definitely think if you look at it through a lens of privilege, I think an example would be something like what people call heteronormativity. And you can look at this across issues, you know, Christian normativity which is, you know, let's say I'm looking at a piece of literature and it's written in a way that just presumes it's normal to be Christian. Because the flip side of that, the suggestion of the flip side of that is it's deviant to be anything else. So then there's like heteronormativity or cisgender normativity, which is just the presumption that everybody's heterosexual or the presumption that everybody is cisgender. And I think for people who are heterosexual or cisgender or white normativity, the assumption that the word German refers to just as Germans of a certain skin tone, you know, just being able to recognize how normalized that is. And I think that's hard for people who are part of the group that's being normalized, how it shows up in curriculum, how it shows up in policies, how it shows up in just everyday conversations about students. One other example I would give is, I haven't done work in Germany, but I've, I've done work in all over the world, various places. But 
One of the things that I see everywhere is what we call deficit ideology. Deficit ideology is the presumption that disparities in education exist. For instance, if we say, okay, well, in the United States, we say black students are punished in schools more frequently than white students. They're suspended maybe or expelled more than white students. The presumption that if I look at that difference, the presumption that that must mean there's something wrong with black students. And so I hear from teachers all the time things like, those kids don't care about education. Those parents don't value school. That is deficit ideology. By the way, we know in the U.S. that the reason black students are suspended more than white students is not because they misbehave more, but it's because of racial bias and how different behaviors are interpreted by teachers. And there are big research studies that show that. So deficit ideology, which is there's something wrong with those people. And in order to have equal outcomes, we need to fix those people. That's very common. And if I want to be able to create an equitable learning environment, I have to learn how to recognize that, how that operates in my own mind, but also in policies and practices and those sorts of things. And I think you also, you published a very wonderful resource, in my opinion, also depicting case studies or examples of social inequity in the school context, also maybe similar to the ones you just mentioned. The book is called Case Studies on Diversity in Social Justice Education. And I can just say we have used it in our teacher training and found it very helpful. And uh, yeah, as you maybe know, we already tried um, to develop also similar case studies that are a bit tailored to the German context. So we really like this approach and Uh, a big fans of it. So could you explain a bit why you started compiling this book and maybe also how you use it for teacher education or how you think it can be used? Absolutely. And I should mention my uh, co-author, Seema Pathani, who's the co-author of that book. We started creating it because we found in the workshops and the teacher training that we do that it can be helpful to give people just a little example, a little scenario or a story of something of how a bias or an inequity might be operating in a subtle way in a classroom or a school or a faculty meeting or something. And sometimes it helps people just to be able to step back and look at an example from outside of their own school and just to practice. And we really wanted people to practice a couple of things. One is just learning how to recognize subtle bias or inequity in a, in a school or classroom The other thing is, you know, practice learning how to think not just in terms of an individual instance, but thinking about individual instances of bias as symptoms of bigger problems that need to be addressed. So one thing we use the case studies for is what is the root cause of the bias or the inequity? And if we want to solve this at the root cause How would we respond to it instead of just sort of being reactive? Let's say a teacher does something racist in a classroom, and the teacher is intending to be racist, but they just do something racist. Let's say we have a scenario like that. We need an initial response, which is, how do we have a conversation with this teacher so they understand better what they did? But then we need a bigger response, which is, You know, what is the professional development needs that we have? What are the skills we need to help this teacher build so that they don't keep doing this? You know, another bigger question is, 
How did we miss this racism in the interview process when we were hiring teachers? Because really, hiring is the first level of accountability when it comes to schools. Yeah, so you really need some prevention, right, before this happens in the in the classroom. And I don't mean to say that, you know, none of us is perfect when it comes to equity, so we can't expect that. But I will say, you know, at the very least, so we can't expect people to be perfect. So I'm not saying if in an interview somebody says something that where they misunderstand something that immediately we should say, we can't hire this person. But if it's egregious enough, we should say that. But at the very least, we will get an idea of what intervention do we need with this person before they're standing in front of children. And based on your experience, what would you say, what can pre-service teachers actually do to develop their own equity literacy? I mean, I know you also founded several organizations, I think that might be helpful also for that purpose or that also fulfill that purpose. Do you have any advice? Well, I think reading a lot, going to workshops, make sure you're going to workshops that are really focused on equity and justice instead of something softer, like appreciating diversity or sort of soft versions of inclusion or belonging, which is sort of the big word now. You know, learn about how racism operates in the larger society so you can recognize it in your own classroom or sexism or whatever the oppression might be. I think I think that's something we can all do. I think surrounding myself with friends and colleagues who can challenge each other. You know, I do think it's important for me as a white person not to lean too heavily on colleagues of color where I'm exhausting them. It's not their responsibility to teach me. But if I'm in community with people, And maybe there's different identities of people in this community, and maybe somebody's pushing me around race, maybe I'm pushing someone else around disability, maybe someone else is pushing someone else around. You know, if we can have that, that sort of collaborative nature, I, you know, I think that's something we could do. Yeah, it's kind of sharing experiences, right? Sharing experiences, sharing knowledge. That's good to hear. Yeah, I remember from my research that some of the teachers that I coach, that they said, I don't have any friend or a colleague of color. So that's really interesting that it's nice to have someone in your environment to not to only ask, but also to share with each other what challenges you have in whatever discipline or thing in life. And I think building a community might also be very important for maybe not losing hope or gaining a bit self-efficacy, that things can be changed. Because I notice in my classes, sometimes when I talk with students about equity literacy and we talk through case studies, sometimes they're also a bit discouraged, you know, just in the face of all the inequity existing out there and their own capability to really make a change with regards to that. So what do you think? How can we at the same time make students aware of all the inequity and injustice existing, but also maybe not have them lose hope that uh, the situation can actually change or that themselves have an influence or can do anything about it? Well, I think one thing we could do is talk about changes and improvements that have occurred in the past. So we could say, here are things that have actually changed. That's one thing that we could do. One thing that I talk about a lot when I'm working with people who might be experiencing that hopelessness, which, by the way, can lend itself to the burnout, <laughs> is I think sometimes, especially for people who have not been socialized to talk about these things, that the conversations can feel negative to them. It's like, oh, you're calling me a racist or you're making me grapple with something that's depressing That's a very privileged view to be able to take, by the way, because I can 
As a white person, I can choose whether or not to engage around that. Someone experiencing racism doesn't get to pick or choose whether to engage around race. But to frame it as something positive, this is really about growth. This is about individual growth. This is about spiritual growth. This is about community growth. So every minute that I spend in these conversations is really about growth. And that's a positive thing. Even though it can feel hard, it's a positive thing. It's not a negative thing. And I think to frame it positively, that's part of why we frame it as a literacy, because I think sometimes educators are overwhelmed with all the things they're supposed to be doing. It's like, oh, I have to do all these other things, and now I also have to do equity. And I say, no, equity is the thing, is your lens that informs how you do all the other things. You know, so, you know, I think framing it like that, and I think celebrating the progress when progress is made, I think also could be powerful. And I think it's also important to make teachers understand that it takes time. It isn't, you know, from the day after you will, uh, that you will know everything or that you will develop all these competencies. It really takes time and you need to be patient. The growth takes time and the change takes time. And it's important to find a balance between, on the one hand, recognizing that change takes time, and on the other hand, making sure we have a sense of urgency that we're not baby-stepping everything. This brings us to our next section, the future. What changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding research on equity literacy, on activist burnout? Can you tell us something about that? Oh, absolutely. So I think starting with that activist burnout research, I think uh, what I would like to see is more of a focus at distinguish. And I talk about this in some of the research I've written about activist burnout, but I'd like to see more of a distinction made I'm really curious, for instance, with anti-racist activists, the way that the burnout someone experiences from being an activist interacts with just the everyday exhaustion of experiencing racism and racial microaggressions. So for me, it's one thing to be an anti-racist activist. It's another thing to be an anti-racist activist who's also experiencing racism. So I think understanding that distinction One of my studies showed that a lot of the burnout that racial justice activists of color experience come from white people who see themselves as racial justice activists. So a lot of the damage is actually being done by well-intended white people. So I think looking at that more closely is really important. In terms of equity and literacy, I think just going into places where it's being implemented in deep and consistent ways and tracking the impact of it and what are the parts of it that are hardest to implement. And uh, because if I could understand that better, we could develop more tools to help people implement it. And can you tell us a bit more about the study that you published about activist burnout in the U.S. about racial justice? You have interviewed uh, 30 racial justice activists to identify the causes of burnout among racial justice activists. Can you explain what you found? Absolutely. So there were three studies that came out of that data set of 30 interviews. The interviews are with racial justice activists in the United States who have experienced burnout and trying to understand what caused their burnout. That was the main interest. So we found several causes, sort of big categories of causes. One set of causes are sort of internal, the pressure that activists put on themselves, 
you know, one thing about activists is they tend to understand very deeply the big scope of suffering that's happening, which is different from someone just understanding, oh, this one individual person has been harmed. But if you know the the scope, we're talking about the huge numbers of people, entire communities across generations. And so I think sort of having an understanding of that just gives activists such a sense of urgency that the tendency is to think, if I'm not constantly doing something about this, then I'm a sellout. No one's doing anything about this, so I have to do everything about this. And so people literally will work themselves until they're sick and they can't do it anymore. And, and I think it's because of that pressure that they put on themselves. So that's one area. Another area has to do with the responses to activism from individuals and organizations that don't want the activism to be happening. So that could be anything from violence from police officers at uh, protests to, you know, what people call doxing, you know, uh, going online and trying to expose people being attacked online. Uh, surveillance. Uh, you know, we know in the U.S. that U.S. government agencies have a long history of surveilling even peaceful activists, including someone like Martin Luther King Jr., those sorts of things. Uh, and then also there's, at the more personal level, people losing friends or having conflict with family members who just don't agree with their politics or, or whatever. So there's that set. And then there's uh, what we call within movement causes. Those might be things like tensions and infighting among activists. And we see this in a lot of movements, not just racial justice movements, but I have the right terminology, you have the wrong terminology. I'm doing this right, you're doing it wrong. You know, that, that sort of thing. And then, of course, something like half of the women we interviewed who were racial justice activists had experienced some kind of sexism, sexual harassment from men in who were racial justice activists. So even things like that. So those are the biggest causes. Yeah, interesting. What changes would you like in the future to prevent activist burnout? How can we help or support racial justice activists? Well, I think movement and organizational leaders should model that addressing the conditions that cause burnout is really important within. So, you know, uh, I know in the U.S. there's a lot of nonprofit organizations that work people ridiculous hours and pay them horribly and that say they're racial justice organizations. You know, that can't happen. Also, I think leaders have to, we have to see addressing burnout as part of the activism. Because also what's happening is most activists have to go outside of their movements to find some support for burnout. That's terrible for the movements because we keep losing all of this knowledge and passion because people have to go outside somewhere. So I also know in the U.S. a big problem is a lot of activist communities see mental health issues as a weakness. And so it's not discussed or it's even people make fun of it. It should be taken more serious. Yeah, I think depression and anxiety, I think those things are rampant among people who do this kind of work. Part, and I think in some ways, for some people, I think even the things that cause depression and anxiety are even sort of positive thing that can also be connected to the things that made people want to become an activist. Like I know for me, I know I struggle with some depression. 
And I think that's very connected to the fact that I have a very sort of profound empathy. Like, I will cry. I can't stand to watch a tree being cut down. It makes me want to cry right now just saying that. You know, so when I see people being harmed, like I sort of like inhale the suffering in a way. Again, as a white man, I can't completely understand the, the suffering. So that part of me that is makes me driven as an activist is also connected to my depression. But it's very hard within activist communities to find people who are willing just to have a conversation about that, even though I suspect that's fairly common. Yeah, yeah thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you. Yeah, Mary, I think it's you... also a very important point that maybe we should also see this ability to be empathetic as a strength, you know? I think it's really, in the end, we need people like that. So, But of course, it's also important to think about how to not um, suffer from this, you know? Because, of course, it's a big burden if you empathize with all people suffering around you, basically. The best way to address that is, instead of just empathy, to have an outlet to put it into action, you know, so that you're not just sort of carrying the weight of it. So having the empathy without the action, in a way you might think of that sort of a privileged <laughs> approach to take too, that I can have the empathy but not feel a responsibility to do something about the suffering. I think that actually connects uh, very, very well to our very last final question for you. How do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher, but also in your case as a job, of course, as a trainer and teacher trainer? Well, I think one of the things that really keeps me motivated is meeting uh, younger people who are doing this work and committed to it and seeing how much passion they have and how people at early ages are sort of building their lives around it. I also think being in community with people who are doing this work keeps me very motivated. On the more selfish level, I just, to be honest, I don't think I could live with myself if I wasn't doing something. I just feel like I would just curl up and, you know, wither. My motivation comes from a sense of responsibility. I don't think it's possible to be in a society where suffering is happening, knowing the suffering is happening, knowing I have the power to do something about the suffering, and choosing not to do something about the suffering. I don't think it's possible to make that decision to not do something and to be spiritually healthy. I just don't think that's possible. But people are socialized to trade their spiritual well-being for the material benefits of racial privilege and advantage or religious privilege and advantage. And it's just terrible. I don't think people just, either people are just awful, evil people, or they just don't realize that they're being socialized to trade their own well-being for what most of us are small material benefits, but for the people who are conditioning us to think that way are much, much bigger material benefits. So I just don't think that's, in my life, that just hasn't been worth the trade. So it's also, I think, important every now and then to just also step back a little bit and reflect on your values in life, right? And like a bit on the overarching maybe direction or compass you're taking and to reconsider that and make sure it's uh, really aligned with who you want to be and what you want to achieve. Thanks so much, Paul, for joining us today and for helping us increase visibility of outstanding social scientists such as yourself and of cutting-edge research. And thank you all for listening and talk soon. We 
want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koemann for logo design and Zeynep Alpay for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Researching Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon! Thank you.